Welcome to the Life Church of Kansas City podcast. Please consider following, sharing, and supporting by giving at tlckcmo.com. May you be blessed by the word of God. Your hands if it's real today for you. Is the Pentecostal blessing real? Has anybody ever experienced this Pentecostal blessing? Can you stand to your feet and worship the Lord for this wonderful Pentecostal blessing? Hallelujah. I'm going to be reading from John chapter 7. And that video, it was shown to me a couple weeks ago. And we don't sing songs like that anymore, but maybe we ought to. But it just ministered to me just the story that he told about how he experienced the Pentecostal blessing. And that's going to be our theme for the message today. John chapter 7, verse number 37 through 39. Jesus, in this passage, he's, he's standing on the temple and he's, he's speaking to Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish people, everybody's gathered around, and he stands up and he gives a very bold statement. It says, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This morning, I'm just going to preach the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you may be seated. The Pentecostal movement began with began with one theological claim. This entire movement, the reason that we're sitting here, that this church is built, that Pentecost is even around, it, became, it came around from one theological claim. And that claim was that the initial sign, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, was speaking in unknown languages, languages that the person receiving the Spirit had not previously known. And this, this experience, this, this blessing, it is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In the 1800s, there was this group of people called, it's called the Holiness Movement. And they were starting to, to use this language of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They would also call it the, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. But if you say that now, it's like kind of like, what is... Holy Ghost, what in the world is that? I mean, I didn't know what it was as a kid. But it's the same Greek word in the Bible, but it's also called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the holiness movement, they, they saw it as a crisis experience where you would, you would pray and you would seek God and you would, you would feel this emotional experience with God. And from that moment on, you were they called it entire sanctification and you were fully sanctified, and original sin was gone, and you can live a sinless life. 
And so they, this, this idea was kind of circulating in Christianity, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so there was a holiness preacher named Charles Fox Parham, and he had a Bible school and a healing home in Topeka, Kansas, not too far from here. And he started this Bible school, and the only textbook that they used was the Bible, hence why they called it a Bible school. I wish when I was in Bible school, that was the only textbook I had to read because I had to do a whole lot of reading. But so they were, they were trying to figure out what, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This, this kind of idea was just floating around. Some people thought it was something. Some people thought it was something else. And so this Charles Parham, he, he had his students and he told them, he said, find out in the Bible what is the baptism of the of the Holy Spirit. Search the scriptures and find out what exactly this is. And so Parham, he, he left them there and he went actually, he came to Kansas City to do some preaching and he left them to figure out what it was and he came back. And from just them reading the book of Acts and being led by the Spirit, they read the accounts in Acts that when the Holy Spirit fell, the initial sign was speaking in other tongues. And so they, they found this in the Word, and so they like, well, let's just try it out, I guess. You know, what else are we going to do? Let's just see if it works. And so they were, they were in this Bible school, and they started praying. And this one woman asked Brother Parham to lay hands on her, like it says in the book of Acts. And, as, and when he did and started praying, she received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and she began to speak in Chinese. And that is where the Pentecostal movement began from that one idea. And there's a man named Howard Goss. And Charles Parham, he, be, he began to organize and he began to, to take these, this message. He began to set up tents and just preach all over where he could. He would send out people, you know, go preach, go preach. And they went to a place called Galena, Kansas. And they had this meeting and there was a man there named Howard Goss. And he was an atheist, but someone invited him to a tent revival. And so he, he showed up at this tent revival. And this is when Pentecost was first getting started. And so they were a little crazy. They, they did some things that, you know, might seem weird even today. You know, shaking and quaking because they didn't know how to respond to the moving of the Holy Spirit. And so Howard Goss, he came to this meeting in this tent revival. And he saw these people doing strange things. And he heard people speaking in languages that they had never heard before. And he knew that this was a sign from God. And seeing that experience converted him from atheism to Christianity. And so Goss, he started coming to these tent revivals. He started going to these church meetings. And after a while, God started to, to work on his heart to become a preacher. And to do the work of the Lord. And at, at first, he, he did not want to do it. He kind of said, no, Lord, I don't want to do that. I want to keep working in the mines where I have been and, you know, I'm making good money and I'm a, I'm a supervisor now and I just want to keep doing my job. And when you say no to God, something you won't do, that usually ends up being the thing that God will call you to do. And so Goss, he was, he was taking some water to feed his horses one morning and it was kind of dark and he, he tripped and he, he fell and he fell on the horse and the horse kicked him right in the head. And when he got kicked in the head, the Lord spoke to him. 
and said, this is your last chance. And he said, yes, Lord, I'll go wherever you send me. And so Goss, he, he sold everything he had. He quit his job, and he went out on the evangelistic field. He began to, to gather groups of, of people together, and they, would, they didn't have any money. They'd only usually have a fare for a train ticket, and they would go from town to town, set up a tent, start preaching, and God would fill people with the Holy Ghost, and miracles would happen, signs and wonders, and then they would start a church, and then they would go to the next town. And he did that for the rest of his life. And eventually he became the, general, the first general superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church, which is the organization that this church is a part of. And this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Once you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, your life will never be the same. It literally changed the course of his life. He had a one set plan. He, he had his whole life figured out, but then in one moment, he received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and his life changed forever. And the same thing is still happening today. And there's, in the scene that I read in John chapter 7, Jesus was teaching at the temple during what they called the Feast of Tabernacles. And this was a a feast that the Jews would celebrate every year to commemorate how God had brought them out of the wilderness after being there 40 40 days, 40 years. And so this feast was eight days long. And during the first seven days of the feast, the Jews would come to the the temple, to the altar, and they would would pour water out by the altar to, to symbolize that God provided water for them miraculously while they were in the wilderness. But on the eighth day, they would not pour out water, and instead they would pray for God to pour out water spiritually and then later physically. And so it's in this setting that Jesus sees what's happening on this feast. And oftentimes Jesus, he sees something physical happening, and then he speaks to the spiritual reality in which it represents. And so Jesus, he sees this happening, and there's no water because they're, they're praying for God you know, instead relying on God through prayer. And he, he stands up on the temple courts. And it says he cries out. It says he cries out. This means that he wasn't just, you know, he wasn't just talking in a normal voice. But he kind of lifted up his voice because what he was about to say was going to be very important. And if you've ever been in a Pentecostal church for very long, you know sometimes preachers, they cry out like Jesus did. Maybe, maybe today, that day, Jesus was preaching like a Pentecostal preacher. He might have had his hanky and he might have, you know, been waving it around and sweat going everywhere and people on the front row are being hit by spit. But it said he cried out. Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John includes, but this he spoke concerning the spirit. Whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus was speaking prophetically of what was about to happen, what it was all for. He was speaking that there was going to come a day when the spiritual thirst of humanity is going to be quenched. And that is through the power of the Spirit. Because this he spoke concerning the Spirit. 
So there was no water on the altar that day, but he spoke and saying, one day there's going to come the source of living water, and your spiritual thirst is going to be satisfied. So Jesus, he used water as a metaphor for what happens when we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is why the gift of the Holy Spirit is also called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You hear the word, you hear the word baptize and you immediately think of water baptism. And if you read in the Bible, anytime someone was baptized in water, it says they came up out of the water, meaning that they were completely immersed in the water. And so Jesus, this, this phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's, it's used to symbolize what happens when we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because to baptize, the word means to be immersed into something. And just like when we are immersed, when we are baptized in Jesus' name, the same picture can be used to describe a spiritual reality of what happens when you are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why it's also called rain because it's the water coming down and falling upon you and taking over your entire being. And so this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the effects of the Spirit are numerous in the Bible. We could span throughout the Old Testament. We could go through the New Testament and talk about everything about the Holy Spirit. But... I want to focus on a couple of things that happens when you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The first thing that happens is that you receive salvation. There's a couple of different ideas about what exactly happens when you receive the gift of the Spirit. Some may say that it's subsequent to salvation or you know it happens at a certain point but the oneness Pentecostal stance is a little bit different than what other people and what you may have heard before but scripture tells us that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a part of the salvation process so what what happens when you come seeking salvation usually what happens is that it is a crisis experience in your life. Crisis, it, it, the word means a time of intense difficulty. And so if you're, maybe you were raised in the church your entire life like I was, and you know I received the Holy Ghost when I was six years old, and it wasn't like there was a, a ton of sin that God had to forgive me of as a poor six-year-old. But oftentimes, if you are converted to God in your adult life, usually what happens is there's a, a chain of events, just different situations, things that happen to your life, whether things that you've done or things that happen to you, and you come to the end of your road and you don't know what else to do. And so you say, maybe I'll just try Jesus. We'll just see what happens. And so when you come to God, it's a crisis. It's a time of intense feelings and, and emotions and, and things that are going on in your life. And so you come to God in this period of crisis. And what oftentimes is that you start thirsting for something more. F.F. F. Bruce said 
The soul's deepest thirst is for God himself, who has made us so that we can never be satisfied without him. Because what often happens if you are converted in your adult life or as a teenager, is what happens is a lot of times we try and find other things to satisfy our thirst. We'll go to entertainment, drugs, sexual sin, other kind of things to try and satisfy that thirst that is inside of our spirit. And you go from one thing to the next, one thing to the next, and there's never seems to be that satisfaction. There's still that thirst there because every single person has a thirst for something greater than themselves. Even someone who doesn't even believe in God, there's a thirst for someone greater, something greater, something, a higher power to come and save them from themselves. Every single person has that. And so that spiritual thirst can only be satisfied through God. And so there was a woman in John chapter 4 who... Jesus was going through Samaria to get somewhere, and he stopped at this well. And there's a woman there, and he asked her if if he could have some water. And they they start, you know, going back and forth. You know, why are you asking me, a Samaritan, for water? You know, you're a Jew. We don't really mingle. We don't really intertwine. And then Jesus tells her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. And then, as, and I kind of picture this scene as what happens to all of us when we encounter Jesus. Because she at first doesn't know what's going on. And then all of a sudden Jesus speaks to her and speaks to her so personally. And he tells her, he says, go go back to your husband. And she says, and he says, you don't even have a husband. You have, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with is not your husband. He, he sees her situation and speaks to right where she is. And maybe we can't relate to having all the different you know, spousal relationships, but we've all tried many different things to try and satisfy the desire inside of our hearts. We've gone to this. That didn't work. Move on to the next thing. We've gone to this. That didn't work. Next thing. Next thing. Next thing. And he sees her situation and speaks right to her and shows her the source of life, the water that will satisfy her thirst. Then as he's talking to her, she realizes that he is the Messiah. And then scripture says that she left her water pot there at the well. The thing that she used to try and satisfy her thirst, she left it there at the well, and she went and told everybody that there is a new place, a new water, living water that can satisfy spiritual thirst. And when you come to Jesus, we all have that water pot of what used to satisfy our spiritual thirst. When we come to Jesus, we have all these things that, God, this is what I'm trying to satisfy my life with because I can't find you, Lord, and this is what I'm trying to do. But when you come to Jesus, when you meet him at the well, which is right here, you leave that water pot there and you walk off and you go live a new life in Jesus Christ. Because his water is the only water that can satisfy. And the way we are satisfied is through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We are washed by his spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul gives 
this list of, of different sins and different things that will keep you away from God, that will keep your heart away from God. And then he says this phrase, and this phrase keeps, it goes through my mind all the time, and I can never get away from it. And he says, he lists all these, all these sins, all these things, and he says, and such were some of you. He piles all these things, all these wrongdoings, all these things that we've tried and find satisfaction in our life. And then he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. And then he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. And maybe you're, you're reading, you're thinking about that list of things that you tried to satisfy your spiritual thirst. And you say, God, how could you ever love me? Did you, do you know what I did? Did you, did you see that list of wrongs? And then the Spirit just reaches out and says, and such were some of you. But we have been washed. We have been sanctified. We have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Because when the Spirit fills you up, there's no room for anything else. When the Spirit fills your heart, there is no room for anything else. So that is one part, the baptism of the Spirit. So that when you have that crisis experience, and you turn away from your sins, and then you go to the waters of baptism to wash away your sins, and you reach out to God, and you open up your heart for Him to come and fill you, that is the conversion experience and so you're might be thinking Caleb I've had been baptized 40 years ago I've had the Holy Ghost for 40 years you know I've been saved and walking with God you know what how does the spirit still apply to my life allow me to show you there's this other idea in the Bible and it's it's called sanctification Another term to describe this idea is holiness. I'm so thankful to be a part of a church that still talks about and preaches a sanctified life and a holy life. And there's this thing about, about Christians, and if you're in this place tonight or today and you've never received this conversion experience I'm talking about, power of the Spirit. Let me just give you a, a secret, and hopefully this won't shake your worldview and, and crush your faith, and you won't leave out and crying and questioning everything, but after, after you're converted, after you become a follower of Jesus, sometimes Christians still sin. Sometimes we're, we go back to those things or, or just something, the temptations from the enemy or, or just our, our own failures. And, and sometimes we, we fall back into the life that we used to be. And if you think you're alone in that, you're not. Because we are all human and we have to deal with flesh. But I am not someone who believes in a defeatist Christian life. There's some theological constructs that would try to say that we are 
there's no good inside of us and that there is nothing that you could ever do to live a life overcoming of sin. And oftentimes this is used as an excuse to not even try. And I'm just here to say that that is not the truth that I find in the word of God. Because there's this thing called sanctification and holiness. And allow me to explain how it works. Romans chapter 6. Paul is he's writing to people that were already saved, the church in Rome. He had not seen them yet, but he was writing to to believers who were saved. And he's, he's kind of giving his, his belief system, what he believes and everything. And, and he's writing in, in chapter 6. And he's talking about the freedom that we now have in Christ. And just allow me to read what he says. He says, Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from, from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. And then he says, but now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves to God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. So when, when we are converted, when we have this conversion experience and we are, our souls are given over to God, our life is changed. In that moment, you are completely set free from your sins. In that moment, you are saved. And you have been set free from the life that was behind you, the power of sin. You have been set free from the power of sin, and you have become God's child. And then in verse 22, he says, Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. But it's not as if once you are converted unto God that you can just keep doing the same things that you used to do. That is not how it works. And so we have this in one sense that we have been set free from the life of sin. And Paul plants that in Romans chapter 6. And then he goes to Romans chapter 7. And at the end of Romans 7, this is one of the most confusingest passages I've ever read in the Bible. Because if you've ever read this passage, Paul the Apostle is writing it. He is a, he's a church planner. He is a leader of so many churches throughout the known world. World And what he says, it just boggles my mind how he can still have these feelings. And so let me read to you what he says, and maybe you can resound with the Apostle Paul's writings. He says, So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do, is, do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. The power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? 
So Paul has been set free from sin because when he was on the road to Damascus, God blinded him and converted him and appeared to him. He was baptized and received the Spirit. But how can he go back to this state of saying, I do what I don't want to do, what I want to do, I don't end up doing it? How is that possible? How can we be set free from sin but at the same time go back to those same things and have those same feelings and you don't do what you want to do? Why can't I just be free? Why can't I just do what I want to do for God and live the life that I want to live? And maybe that's your experience. You've, you've been baptized. You've received the Spirit. You've repented of your sins. You've changed your life, but you feel defeated. You feel like you can't do what's right. You're, the sinful nature of the flesh is tugging at you to go back and to do these things again. It's a war. It's a bitter fight. How do we overcome this? How can Paul the Apostle say this? And in verse 25, he says, thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. See, because of the way that sin entered in the world, when you're converted, there's still that power at work inside of you. The Bible calls it the law of sin. The flesh, if you read the Bible, it's the flesh. It's that part of you that doesn't do what you want it to do. And so it's at war within your spirit because we do not have our glorified bodies yet. We still live in earth, so there's always going to be that war inside of you. And if you don't walk in the spirit, what Paul wrote, that is going to be your life. If you give into the flesh, if you give back into your old life, you are going to do what you don't want to do. If you don't walk in the spirit, that is going to be your life. And so I'm moving on now to the answer. I'm moving on now to the hope. Because that is, it is a reality of the Christian walk. And it's a reality that we all live in that there's that part of us that could do something that we don't even think we could ever have the possibility to do. But then Paul says, the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then Romans chapter 8, it is one of the most powerful passages in the entire Bible. And so Paul, he writes this, this whole discourse, I'm not doing what I want to do. And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then here's the modifier, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the to the Spirit. If you want to live an overcoming life, you've got to walk according to the Spirit. Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That is the Spirit that we have inside of us, this experience that we've had inside of our heart. It says, has made us free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin is that, that sinful nature, that flesh that's inside of you. And you have the Spirit inside of you, and so you've been set free from the law of sin. But it's not just going to happen automatically. It's not just going to happen automatically. It's not that you don't have any part to play. Salvation is through God and through God alone. But once we are saved, we have to fight this flesh. And then Paul says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells inside of you. And this is why we need the spirit. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of God, he is not his. If you do not have the spirit of God, you are not Christ's. But if you are in this room, and Paul says, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. 
If you have the spirit inside of you, you have the power to live righteous. If you have the spirit inside of you, you have the power to live holy. It's not going to be easy. You're going to have to fight. You're going to have to go to war every day. You're going to have to put on the armor of God and fight your flesh, fight the devil, fight the world. But there is victory. If you have the spirit of God living inside of you, there is victory. We don't have to live a life saying, I can't do any good. There's nothing I can do. You know, I'm just going to keep on living in sin. I'm going to keep on just falling into the flesh. Who cares? You know, once saved, always saved. That's not the case. But once you give into the power of the Spirit and allow the Spirit to let you live a holy life, you will have victory. You will have victory. Romans chapter 8 Verse number 37, this is the normative Christian experience. This is how your life should be. He says, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If you walk after the spirit and don't give in to your flesh and walk after God and live a holy life, you will be more than a conqueror. Paul says, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. If you give your life to righteousness and to the spirit, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. When you give your life to holiness and to righteousness and to doing what God wants you to do, you will be more than a conqueror. You will conquer this flesh. You will live a life of victory and do what God has called you to do. If you look at anybody in this church who is doing great things for God, I can promise you this, that they pray, that they seek after God, and that they live a holy life because the only way that you can fight your flesh and do what you want to do is by living a holy life. And living a holy life is not trying to earn salvation. You can never do enough good. You will never be able to do enough good for God. But once you realize that it is a response for what God had done, has done in your life, it will take you farther than you ever thought you could go. And it's not just about rules. There's certain things. There's certain guidelines. But law, love is far stricter than law. If you do it out of your love for God and what Jesus did for you on Calvary, you will do far more than you ever thought you could because it is a response to what Jesus did for you. Jesus died for my sin. I can't give my life to drugs. Jesus died for my sin. I can't give my life to pornography. Jesus died for my sins. I cannot be bound by certain things. It is a response to what God did for you. This is the life of faith. This is the life of holiness. This is the life of victory that once you walk after the spirit and not in the flesh, you are more than a conqueror. If we could all stand in this place if the music wants to come. Just pray right now and ask God's spirit to just speak to you in this moment. Ask the Spirit to speak to you and to help you in this moment. Jesus, he stood up and he gave that, he cried out, 
He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Like I said before, John included after that. He said, but this he spoke of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When Jesus died, we sang about it. The veil was torn in the temple. That allowed the presence of God that dwelt there to be spread throughout all humanity. Jesus died, he was buried, and he was resurrected from the dead. But does not stop there. Because 50 days later, a group of people gathered in an upper room to pray. They gathered in a room to pray and to seek God because Jesus had promised that the Comforter, that the Helper, that the Holy Spirit would come and it would help them live an overcoming life. Because say, God, we can't do this by ourselves. God, it's so hard. We live in such a dark world. God, everybody hates us. No one thinks we're doing right. God, I'm doing all these things for you, Jesus. I'm trying to dress right. I'm trying to live right. I'm trying to pray. God, I'm trying to go to church. I'm trying to read my Bible. It's hard because no one else in my job does looks what I like. No one else in my school lives how I live. God, it's hard. This world is dark. What am I going to do? When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one place in one. Of course, there came the sound of a mush rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting God poured out his spirit on his people because God knows it's hard he knows that that flesh is fighting you he knows that it's telling you not to come to church he knows it's telling you not to do what is right and it's going to be hard but once you walk after the spirit you will have victory you no longer have to live a defeated life So if you're in this place today, you've never had that crisis experience with God where you come to him and say, God, I'm tired of living this way. Jesus, I want your spirit. This is the well that I was talking about where the water flows from. You can come and ask God just through prayer. Say, God, I don't even know what to say, but Jesus, I just want your spirit inside of me. Jesus, I want to live a life free from sin. And as you pray, God, if you come with repentance and faith, God will fill you with the Spirit and you will speak in other tongues. And maybe in, your pla- in this place today, and you've been living for God for a while, but you feel like you're living in a defeated life. There's situations, family situations, something you did, things are not going right in your life. This is the well that will never run dry. The Spirit is being poured out to give you strength, to give you victory for the life, the Christian walk. Jesus, I pray, God, over your people, God. This great congregation, Jesus, these wonderful saints, God, these people that have come to worship you, God. Lord, I know how hard it was trying to come to church today. God, and the flesh was fighting them, Lord Jesus. But they came, God, and they're showing an act of faith, Lord, that they want to know you. Jesus, I pray that you would open up the windows of heaven and pour out your spirit, God, on your saints today. Jesus, just let us feel a baptism of your spirit like we never have before, Jesus. Just let us feel your presence, God, like we never have before, Jesus. A renewing, a refilling of your spirit. If that's you today, I invite you to come to this altar. Come to the well that will never run dry. 
Come and ask God to fill you with his spirit again, to renew your strength for your life, to renew you and so that you can be more than a conqueror through him that loved you. Just open up your heart to him. Say, Jesus, I've tried everything, God. I'm tired of living this way, Jesus. I want your spirit inside of my heart. Just open up your heart to him. Ask for his spirit to come and baptize you again. Because like the song said at the beginning, it's real. This Pentecostal blessing, it's real. It's real once you come to the altar and thirst after God, it's real. His spirit is here. The water that will never run dry is here. He's speaking to souls right now. He's Thank you for listening to this message. For more content, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at The Life Church KC. Reference the episode notes for more details.